Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Thriving Minds podcast. I'm Professor Selena Bartlett. Today, I'm joined by Kelly Stastny. Really, really happy that she's joining us today. You're going to really love her work. She's the current chair of Intervoice Board, social worker. She just completed a double degree at La Trobe University. Congratulations, master's in social work and a degree in human services. Just brilliant. She's a passionate advocate within the Hearing Voices movement. She's also an experienced community support worker, and she has a demonstrated history of working in the community health sector and healthcare industry. But most importantly, she's also a mother of two young children currently. So she's given us her time today, and I'm so grateful to have you here, Kelly. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. And time out from the children is always good, particularly to have adult conversation. Yes. So you and I met um I've been following this movement for at least 10, 12 years. Unfortunately, I should have known about it way sooner than that, but I didn't. Um, And you and I have already met and talked a lot about this movement. And I think there's going to be a lot of people listening to this podcast that will not know about it. And if you don't mind, Kelly, can you take us back to the moment when you first encountered the concept of hearing voices and its impact on mental health? And how did this discovery resonate with you personally and professionally? Um, well, initially, I suppose when I first encountered the concept of hearing voices was uh, through my own lived experience. And unfortunately, interactions and society around me informed me that it wasn't okay, it wasn't normal. Um, I remember talking about it with a friend in primary school and she looked at me like I had grown a second head. I remember being sat in a psychiatrist appointment with my mother where the psychiatrist said, and you're not hearing voices, are you, to my mother. Um, So there were lots of messages that it wasn't okay. So as um, the voices that I had heard from a very small child continued through my life, I learned to keep very quiet about them. Um, Unfortunately, my mental health deteriorated in my teenage years um, and I was really fortunate rather than the pathologizing, I suppose, reductionist viewpoint of group when I heard this incredible woman, Jackie Dillon, speaking about the hearing voices approach. Um, She shared a message of the connection between the voices that we hear in our own life experiences. She shared a message of hope. um, And I have never felt so seen in my entire life. I was like, oh, this is my story. I am I ran home that night and I wrote her an email, which I never imagined she would respond to. But she did, and that is how I found my tribe, the Hearing Voices Network and Intervoice, the movement. I have my yeah gratitude towards Jackie for that is, you know, just the power in her sharing her story and creating that hope was such an alternative to what I'd been kind of conditioned to understand the experience to be. So I think, Kelly, the the piece in that that you that you said was about how that resonated with you. And for the first time, someone had really seen you. And I think there's a lot of people listening either personally or within their network of people because everyone knows my personal story, um, which we can go over later. But this connection, so few people understand, including myself, who had been studying the brain for a long time before I discovered this work too. And I wish I had it for my sister, but I didn't. So... Mm. Let's, let's, if you don't mind, 
we need to help the audience understand these connections that they would be kind of shocked, in my opinion, to learn about. Um, so I, I, as I've kind of, I think mentioned just before is I hid my experiences of voices because I believed with society, hearing voices was a arbitrary symptom of schizophrenia or such like diagnoses and was an incurable life sentence, if you will. I, um, you know, recovery didn't seem to go hand in hand with any of those diagnoses. Um, and it was definitely a limited worldview of what was offered when I was diagnosed and medicated at 17, 18. Um, for me, I experienced some incredible trauma, uh, neglect, grief and loss throughout many stages of my life. Um, however, I heard voices that were somewhat kind of benign, comforting, companionate as a young child. As my mental health deteriorated in my early teens, these voices became more, I suppose, destructive, um, cruel in some of the content that I heard. Um, I was getting lots of messages that I now understand to be linked to experiences of guilt, shame, confusion, um, and also lots of the negative experiences in my life. So I was very uh, distressed by the voices that I was hearing. I was very confused by their content and it wasn't until I started working from the, I suppose, perspective of the hearing voices approach that kind of understands that hearing voices is a meaningful and common human experience that I was able to unpack it in relation to my own life history and make sense of the voices that I heard. For me, I think that the voices that I hear are disassociated parts of me that hold and represent different aspects of unresolved emotional um, and psychological issues that I've had. And even today, the voices that I hear have really pertinent messages that represent maybe difficult emotions that I'm having or things that I might not be paying attention to. And I noticed uh, you and I both share a kind of almost a love of Eleanor Longdon's work and I only met this movement too through her TED talk, uh, et cetera. So, and I think you had the same experience there too. So you were telling me that you went to a conference oh. too. So the, yeah, the, um, so after finding the approach in 2008, um, I was part of a group of young people uh, in my local area who developed a DVD called the Hope and Recovery Project which was kind of sharing our stories and how we'd made sense, meaning of our madness, I suppose. So we were uh, we went and presented at the world's first Hearing Voices Congress in the Netherlands in Maastricht, um, and that's where I met face-to-face -face my tribe. I, um, I think what was so amazing at that experience was there's such a them and us in psychiatry. There's an inherent power imbalance within health systems. And I go to this Congress and there's psychiatrists, there's psychologists, there's voice hearers, there's self-proclaimed mad people sitting around at the same table, sharing, learning, discovering together. Um, I had the honour of meeting the likes of Eleanor Longdon, Jackie Dillon, Ray Waddingham, who have their lived experiences that they bring to the table, but also so many incredible professionals and allies um, and also the founders of the movement, Professor Marius Rom and Dr. Sandra Escher, who um, 
they really did become my family of choice, all of these people. Um, Peter Bullimore, um, gosh, I could I could actually go on, but Rufus May, there's some incredible names and individuals and such important work that they've done, Olga Rushman, that have, um, you know, brought so much and continue to develop, grow and evolve what it is to be the Hearing Voices Movement. Um you want to share how big and this movement just the inspiration is now? Uh, so it's a, a worldwide movement um, and the hearing voices, gosh, it is around the whole world now. We have, we're truly global and you can see um, we're in, a, obviously, Belgium, Bosnia, Brazil, Croatia, Canada, France, Germany, Iceland, and I'm missing many, many more. Um, but we're all around the world and continuing to develop and evolve. Um, recently, we've had World Congresses highly online by the Hearing Voices Network in Ireland, um, and they just kind of showed the capacity for us to still connect as a tribe and as a movement and create the same energy that is very unique to a World Hearing Voices Congress. So the reason I bring that up is because there's going to be a lot of people listening that would love to know uh there's so many people struggling in these areas and they and they feel helpless. I know my family certainly felt very, very helpless in these spaces, um, but this was in 1989 uh, all the way through 2006. There was just nothing, no opportunity, no knowledge or expression of these kind of opportunities. I've only, I had to stumble across it through people that have lived experience. So for all the families and uh, or, or individuals listening, you're the hope in this uh, in this podcast. So as you put that DVD together and now we're doing podcasts instead, do you want to share some of those hopeful messages for people listening that are hearing this for the very first time? And because you you heard it for the very first time at one point, and it's not it's not an easy thing to hear necessarily. I think that um understanding that there's actually many, many reasons why people hear voices. They can be because of life experiences. They can be responses to trauma and adversity, um, neurodivergence, um, a response to difficult or overwhelming emotions. Um, there's also cultural elements where they could be communicating with spirits, ancestors. Um, and I think what I love most about the Hearing Voices movement is that we think that people have the right to describe and define their own human experience. I think sharing the message that hearing voices is a common human experience that has so much stigma and fear attached to it, which is often why people feel so isolated and alienated from the societies that we live in. Um, I think that we, you know, the intervoice community, the hearing voices community, we intentionally want people to be able to make sense of their own stories and their own experiences. Um, so there's not one way to understand voices. Um, it is completely responsive to the individual experience. We kind of sit really comfortably with uncertainty. We don't know what we don't know, and it's okay not to know. It's about how can we make changes that might make your life easier that might make your connections easier, that might make your ability to understand what's going on for you easier. Um, 
I think also understanding that hearing voices, there can be lots of other sensual, sensor, sensor, my goodness, lots of other sensory experiences that go along with it, like visual, smells, touch. Um, and that can be incredibly overwhelming and frightening. So whilst I'm, I am trying to share a message of hope, it's in no way to diminish how hard it can be to have these unusual per- perceptual experiences um, and how alone you can feel. I do know that when I first heard Jackie Dillon sharing her story and when I first went to this World Congress, is it was just so okay to be who I was finally, that that idea of shame or stigma uh, that kind of really surrounds these experiences. It wasn't present. It wasn't there. Um, I'm more interested in how we can help support people to live their lives under their own terms. I think that there's so many myths that surround the hearing voices experience. One, like being that hearing voices is rare, like it's a common, very common human experience. I think it's like between 10 to 25% across people and cultures at one point or another in their life will hear voices. Um, I think that hearing voices is an arbitrary sign of a mental illness. I think it's actually, it occurs in lots of reasons, you know, and at lots of states across people's lives. There's lots of instances of older people who have lost their loved ones hearing their voices. Um I think the hardest one for me to kind of sit with as a young person was people won't recover. This is a life sentence and, you know, don't hope too high. Get a job in a supermarket or a cafe with a kind of, um, I feel like where I was kind of pushed and I don't know that those doctors had ever felt how actually intensely stressful working in hospitality or retail can be. Um, So people can and do recover. Some people stop hearing voices. Some people live well with their voices. Um, And I think also that kind of that huge stigma that sits around people that hearing voices is makes people dangerous, that they're violent. I think far more often they're more at risk of being victims of violence um, and having it perpetrated against them. And I think that hearing voices isn't always a negative thing. Some of the voices I hear are really witty. They can challenge what's going on around me. They can be really funny. They can also be really supportive, um, kind, um, encouraging, but also they have really important messages that the world can be a really unsafe place sometimes and they help me to protect myself in ways that I couldn't protect myself as a child. And that's a great uh, point, and that's the thing that resonated a lot when I read Eleanor's work, her book and her TED Talk, and really as my work evolved in understanding the brain, I was trying to uncover the root causes of mental illness. And uh, as I lent into Andrew and Folletti's work around adverse childhood experiences and, and all sorts of other places, that's how I ended up having this meeting with you right now. Uh, Eleanor talks a lot about when she finally, she was a lawyer, right? She was at uni when it all started her ending up in wards and things like that. And she talks a lot about how the worst of her trauma end up being the worst of her voices and mm-hmm. that she was able to work out strategies, as you mentioned already, to handle it. 
as she got once she finally understood it and then that started to subside and I don't know that's the bit I think very few people have an understanding about so voice dialoguing um is a really interesting concept in actually developing relationships with the voices that you hear um there's a tool that was developed um called the Maastricht interview which is a way to kind of interview a person and understand their experience of voice hearing um i have found most helpful in my own and i don't call it recovery anymore i call it my discovery journey because i'm not trying to recover who i was before she didn't have she didn't have it together enough to fight for me so i'm i'm discovering each and every day and it's ongoing but voice dialoguing um has played a huge part and that's been hugely supported by many people with lived experience and many professionals within the hearing voices network and i've developed and continue to develop relationships with my voices the most distressing voices i hear have needed the most love they have needed the most compassionate uh responses from me because they were the parts that held the most pain the most distress um of my past experiences um and i think that those compassionate kind of ways to view and respond to voices it can be really difficult it's challenging it can be really hard work and there's often a lot of sitting with Im- immeasurable discomfort around this so having spaces like hearing voices groups where you can learn and share together from other peers and people with lived experience are just really essential into providing and creating that safety for people to go there and to develop their own strategies um i know for myself i have a plethora of strategies some days they work really well others less well so i have to have a huge variety that i can draw from Yeah, and well done for finding that. That's it's an incredible journey your experience and your life having now a mother of two young children and completing a double degree at university as well as being the chair of Intervoice. I mean, isn't that incredible? I would love to go back to, you know, 17-year-old me. Um and offer that message of hope, but I know 17-year-old me was so firmly entrenched with the beliefs of psychiatry that I probably would have told myself to watch my delusions and my grandiosity um that that was probably just a symptom of me being really unwell so i um it can be really hard to imagine yourself living in a space that you would want to be in you know, i never imagined that i would have a healthy relationship that i would choose to get married that i would have children but i also never imagined that i would travel the world um the hearing voices movement has opened up the world to me and my tribe continues to grow every year and it continues to become more diverse more nuanced and i learn constantly from other people about their experiences and i feel so privileged to be in this position within intervoice um but also really really hopeful that I'm doing something positive for the movement that makes it something really strong that can be passed on to the next upcoming generation to continue the work um and to continue spreading a message of hope. Yes, and thank you for doing that because sometimes it's not easy is it to tell these stories and I have to say that when I opened the curtain my curtain opened 
when I actually saw that I was incorrect in my journey of understanding the brain. Uh, and because I've been on a journey to understand why my sister ended up in a lockout ward in 1989 and how she was treated with, she was catatonic and in padded cells. And honestly, she had just heard voices and she'd just been through a very traumatic experience. I didn't know that at the time. I was very young and naive. I was a pharmacist. So I put that hat on and I traveled the world for 20 years trying to uncover the root causes, but I was in the wrong direction. So looking at genetics and early life experience, it was hard to sit with that for me for a while until I understood that actually we're all on that same journey and we're, we're going through evolution and actually incredibly powerful ability the brain has to keep us alive and safe in the worst of situations that we encounter in our life. So on the other flip side of all of this, it's actually people that are incredibly powerful and strong <laughs> that have learnt these strategies and to so stay creative. safe. Yes, and this is the yeah. bit that we always we always look at the deficits, but there's so many strengths involved in what those voices did to keep you feeling safe at a time when there was nothing else available. And just to be able to continue to go on, that's what my voices, you know, they've held distress um, and hurt that I wouldn't have been able to manage, like, at all. Um, And you think about the strengths that, you know, it can bring is I can listen into other conversations super well and concentrate on a conversation that I'm having, you know. I, I can multitask really well. I think about, you know, because hearing voices all the time can be a really overwhelming experience and it can be really difficult to concentrate. Um, I've managed to develop strategies that have helped me to kind of keep functioning on the task or focused on the task that I'm meant to be doing and still have it as somewhat background noise um, and just get on with it. Amazing. Congratulations. It's just an incredible story. Um, so in your journey with Intervoice, do you mind sharing some of the most inspiring stories um, that you've learnt as well in your new tribe of people? Yeah, um, I think it's really funny to think that it's been around 14 or so years that I've been involved. I think meeting um, Professor Marius Rom and Dr Sandra Escher when I was a, you know, in my early 20s was really profound. Um Sandra had this really in, intense curiosity about people um, and in the questions she asked and she really helped me to think about my story and my experience, um, the impacts of my family of origin um, and their history too and what role that played. Um, but also for that power imba- that power imbalance to be really removed Um that was really profound. To be considered an expert in your own experience is a really, really powerful shift for somebody. Um, I often say that, you know, they say knowledge is power. I don't think that. I think knowledge is empowerment. I think it gives you something far greater and far more important than power. Like you've mentioned, the stories of um, Eleanor Longdon of Ray Waddingham, um, Jackie Dillon. What I admire most about their stories is they've continued to develop um, as their understanding has grown or I suppose as it's become more nuanced or 
connected to different parts of their story. I think that this hasn't remained stagnant. This movement hasn't just stayed where it started. It's continued to grow and be influenced by so many incredibly brave, curious, compassionate, clever, insightful and thoughtful people that there is just this immense gratitude in their superpower, which is often their vulnerability. How do we get this integrated into everyday practice? I'm sure you're thinking about that a lot. Like, you know, how do we help the people on the front lines, you know, emergency rooms? Like if if I, I think back to the time when my sister was in an emergency ward in Brisbane and it was a diagnosis of what she wasn't and uh, it, she ended up becoming a ward of the state out mm-hmm. of my parents' control, except like I know that was a long time ago but and we know a lot more now. So what can we do differently? Like I'm sure your movement must be thinking about how do we integrate this into front lines so that people don't have to go through all the traumatic experiences yeah, absolutely. They end up because, just because we're afraid and we don't understand and, you know, we need more ways of integrating this work into regular practice i think it i think it's really challenging because i feel like they're even for the professionals i think that there becomes um i think there's fear but i also think there's some shame and guilt about the fact that these approaches are so embedded but they're seeing them not working but we continue to keep doing the same thing um i think that um professionals you know, become these professionals because they care, because they want to make a difference, because they really want to help people. Unfortunately, they're working within systems that are quite archaic in their setup and their approaches sometimes. And I feel that that can really impact a person's ability to work with people, to go alongside people. I think this them and us that really exists as in I'm the professional, I have the answers and I can give you um, even the idea of recovery I feel has been taken by services and become somewhat tokenistic as, you know, we can give you this. They can't. It has to come from you. Um, I used to say in a lot of my presentations as a young person that you can't sit on your ass and slide up a hill and and you really can't. It takes so much work and it has to come from within you. It can't be from other people. I um I used to do a lot of presentations, um, and that all kind of stopped, you know, having kids and studying. And I've just been invited to do one next week, and it's a staff development day with the New South Wales Ministry of Health. I think creating these conversations, um, and trying to increase the capacity of professionals to be vulnerable. I mean, not sharing, you know, all of their stuff, but just to connect with the humanness of people, um, to learn how to bear witness and that it's okay not to know. It's okay to be curious. I um, I think when you see somebody knowing that their external presentation isn't going to match the internal presentation, it's not going to match what's going on, there might be lots of incongruence. There might be lots of difficult behaviours, but I think we have to get more creative in thinking about what needs is this person trying to get met? What needs didn't they have met throughout their whole lives? What have their experiences been? I think we have to be also considerate that engaging with health services has often been coercive. 
I think that there's a there's a lot of harm that can be done within if you've had an experience of, you know, child sexual abuse, that having these relationships that feel like you have no control, you know, um, that you feel forced into, having forced treatment is is another harm that's being done to people. And I think we need to we need to be more aware of that. We need to be able to name that as professionals and services and we need to find a way to combat that. And I I don't have the answer, but I think that we need to give people more space and more autonomy to think about what will work for them. Sorry. The understanding in society about uh, adverse childhood experiences, uh, I think that is should be in parenting classes as well. I don't think that's ever talked about that uh, that because we don't like to open those curtains. But this is a big deal. Uh, you know, Andrew Filetti's work demonstrated that eighty nine percent of women that are use IV drug users were sexually abused as children. So they're very high statistics and we always focus on the IV drug use, but we don't focus on the root cause. And I think that's the big game changer that's got to happen too in terms of societal understanding. Just a viewpoint, I've I've never met a person entering mental health services that doesn't have a story. And it's not always, you know, severe abuse. It might be grief, loss, neglect. Yeah, you just never know what will affect somebody and and the stuff that affects one person might not affect another. I think that we need to we need to step away from diagnosis and which is really difficult given we live in Australia and we're really confined by the NDIS. Um but we need to step away. We need to think about the limitations that provides people and we need to help meaning making. We need to help optimism. We need to help fueling that fire as hope. And I think as professionals, the the most important thing you can do is hold the hope when it can't even be felt by the other person. Help to fan that hope. And for families that are um, worried too. Oh, like it's just. The families you, you, will find the support. They'll do anything uh, if they knew what to do. And I think the thing that I remember the most clear in our journey as a family was just the helplessness of my parents, mm-hmm. but then myself until I worked out a little strategy that kept my sister alive for probably an extra eight years. I don't know if that was a good thing or not with what she went through, but, you know, finding her in public housing in a boarding house one day, that was the last straw for me. And because she was going between places kind of homeless, you know, and whatever, uh, you know, just I just remember that feeling of people feel so alone in the experience and don't Absolutely. know what to do. And I feel like the other thing that I love about your work, and thank you for taking up the chair of the board because it's always a lot of work, is that we've got to help find these resources and get them to families as well that are looking for help and support. There's this amazing website because um, I'm working with um, young people at the moment Um and parents are coming in like, oh, they're hearing voices. There's so much fear, you know, what what diagnosis is it going to be? And so I'm sharing this resource a lot. It's the Voice Collective in the UK, and they've developed these amazing resources, which helps parents, carers understand the experience of hearing voices um, through the lens of the hearing voices approach. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm going to put that in the link to the podcast, everyone listening. 
Um, Resources is so important. I'll also have Kelly's links too, everyone, if if you're wondering. It really, um, you just see it's this palpable relief in the room. Oh, absolutely. Um, And I I just, you know, I even had, um, you know, I've had parents be so relieved that it's not what they've kind of been conditioned to think that it may be. Yes, absolutely. I, I, you know, Kelly, I often think my sister obviously isn't here anymore. Um, she took her life in 2006. But um, anyway, we won't go down that pathway. But she was an actress. Mm-hmm. So I often think, and because back in the day, that wasn't really a supported thing. And, you know, but I often think back now with all this new knowledge that I've gained in the last, uh, since her passing and I just think of all the strategies that she would have had the capacity to implement with the appropriate yes. training and tools and understanding and compassion and like what you have available to you now. And and she always wanted to have kids and get married. That was her thing compared to the rest of the family. So I'm so grateful that you're here doing the hard, hard work. I'm glad you kept pushing when I'm sure many days you know, the things you've told me, it it would be hard to keep going sometimes in the beginning of this new journey you went on. And sometimes it's still really hard. You know, I'm not up here saying that this is easy. No, Um, it's a, it's a daily choice, but I'm thinking about your sister. um, There's some incredible initiatives that are happening um, around the world. And one very local to us um, in my hometown um, is called Listening to Voices, which is a, um, I actually just saw it again the other night and um, I cried from woe to go and I left feeling like I'd been so seen but that my story and many stories, both from carers, loved ones and those with the lived experience were being told in such a unique way. Um, So this is a really powerful performance and I'll also provide this link to you. Um, but the Listening to Voices is a theatre production that was co-designed by this incredible group of humans who I admire and love very dearly, but they've also developed an online resource, which is another. It's freely available and could be incredibly helpful and I think needs to be within all TAFE, university, potentially even school environments and workplaces. Fantastic. Thinking before about what you were saying about the front line is that I think when they hear the lived experience, when they sit with their own humanness, I think that that's what's going to shift and create the change. Um, We don't need to wait for the systems to change. We need to change individuals. And I think that that's where we will elicit the most change and create more potential and hope for people. Because I know that the healthcare professionals are looking for help too. I know that for certain because they feel alone in the in, and they they understand all of this. And they're looking for support because yeah. they, they have 10 minutes or 15 minutes and then they've got to deal with the next person. And that's part yeah. of this, right? We need places to go that this is a what got wired in over maybe a few generations or even 18 years doesn't get wired out overnight either. Yeah. But um, as we strive together to create a more inclusive and understanding society for individuals experiencing many different challenges and also the amazingness of our abundance that we have in Australia, uh, what can we continue to do as individuals 
people listening that want to join and help us and as a society to start raising awareness, reduce stigma and start to provide effective support for those, not just hearing voices. There's many other factors here, as you already mentioned. That's just one of them that seems to have the most stigma attached to it in some ways. Mm-hmm. What can we do, Kelly? Tell, show us the future, a bright future that you've thought about. I'm sure you've thought about this a lot now that you've... I, I, I definitely have. And, and look, I've said it a few times, I think today is, you know, be able to be present and bear witness to somebody. Um, it can do so much. I think embrace your own humanness, that that actually can create change through those, you know, I know relationships are essential into me succeeding and discovering um, a future that felt bright and hopeful. I think um, looking beneath behaviours and presentations, let's stop asking people what's wrong with them. Let's start asking what has happened to them. Um, You know, when Eleanor says that in her TED Talk, I have heard that I think a thousand times her TED Talk potentially and it still hits me straight in the chest when I hear her say that because we are so often worried about what's wrong with someone, why are they acting like this? And I think if we get curious about what's happened to them, we're going to figure out a way to help them. For health professionals, I want them to anchor to the values that brought them to the helping and health industry, to be aware of their own living and lived experience because we all have it. I would ask them to hold their values really tightly, but I would ask them to hold their beliefs lightly because they never know what new information they will get that might alter that. And to never, ever underestimate the power of connection and the potential for one professional to instigate positive change, even when hope feels impossible. Wow. I want you to be prime minister. (laughs) Yeah, no. (laughs) I I don't want to do that. I, uh, I want to make real change. With real people. <laughs> well, I, I do too. So I'm so glad we met and I'm really so happy to see the strides you're making in this space for people in Australia, bringing Intervoice to Australia, maintaining chair. You're a very young, driven, uh, intelligent woman and we need more of this and we need it to be further integrated across the whole of Australia, especially in country towns, which they have very little access to any kind of support services. Something like this could make such a big difference. We have the CWA, don't we? Why can't we have the intervoice connected communities um, weaving across Australia? And, and that, look, there's some very powerful pockets of the Hearing Voices um, network and movement throughout Australia. Um I think as a network in Australia, we could do better at being more connected. Um, And that's definitely something that I want to focus on in um, the next few years. I think uh, find out where there's some hearing voices training. Also myself and um, a very dear friend um, and collaborator of mine, we um, have our own training and consultancy. Um, So we're looking at developing some more online stuff to have greater reach. Um, But it's, I think, you know, we have to create possibilities without expectations and see where that leads us. Good luck. Thank I you so much. Forward, I look forward to having you on again 
and maybe we can bring on some more people that have really benefited and changed their whole life as a consequence of this knowledge. I've met so many young people in the world that have overcome four generations of being in the foster care system just by understanding what happened to them. Wow. That's so, so powerful. They, they went and reconnected with their great-great-grandmother who had to give, the eight up, give up eight of her children to the foster care system because her husband died in the war, and that started the four generations. And that understanding really turned, transformed her understanding of herself, and now she's trying to help other people understand that too. So those stories of what happened to you rather than what's wrong with you goes a long way actually, in terms of starting the healing journey. Absolutely. And yeah, I think as a society how far we've come. We've come a long way. The potential for future is huge. (laughs) No, look, we're we're a bit slow humans. um, Where was I? I was in one of these ancient museums and uh, it was from the Aztecs and they had skulls with with holes in them because that's how they used to treat mental illness. They used to drill holes in people's skull. It's called trephination. That was the that was some of the treatments that used to be, and not that long in our own journey, uh, you and I in our own lifetimes, some of the things we've seen, and I've seen personally is you know we have come some way uh, in those thirty years. But I'd like to now see that kind of speed up a little bit now that we have all of this knowledge and understanding and experience and places for for people to go that we've never had before. Mm. So let's hope we can do it. I have lots of hope. (laughs) Thank you, Kelly, for everything and uh, you're doing. And I look forward to hearing from you again. All right. Thanks for having me. 